Okay, well, we are still in Genesis chapter 3. We started it uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, and we are dealing with uh, the fall, uh, what we refer to as the fall, uh, or Adam and Eve's original sin, and... Uh, and the consequences of that. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fall itself, how that occurred, and as Rick was mentioning, uh, he's going to talk some more about that, so that's great uh, over the next couple of weeks. And then last week, we talked uh, uh, about God coming uh, to seek Adam and Eve out in paradise in the garden following the fall. And uh, we only got about halfway through uh, that material, so we'll pick up there and go on from there. So, uh, let's read uh, chapter 3 and, uh, and recall the things that have happened. Well, it's, for time's sake, let's pick it up in about verse 8. And uh, we'll read down through verse 24. And, uh, and then we'll just review very briefly the things that we looked at last week and go on from there. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments for a skin for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and the rest of the garden uh, out of excuse me out <coughs> and he drove the man out 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay? Well, last week we looked at beginning in about verse 8 and 9, and we looked down through about verse 15. So what do you remember that we talked about last week? blamed his wife, but he also kind of pointed the finger at God for what happened. <laughs> what else? I was struck this morning thinking about, I don't remember if we talked too much about it, but Adam actually thought that he could hide. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? <clears throat> we do it all the time. We try to hide all the time, don't we? And uh, and yet God knows. And I, I think about that when I think about the issue of confession of sin. The confession of sin doesn't do God any good. <laughs> he knows. But it is incumbent upon us to do it because we need that. We need to come face to face with our sin. Yeah, good point. What else? You said our defense against We are not, we are not helpless when it comes to deception and deceivers. <laughs> if we, uh, if we are familiar, if we familiarize ourselves with God's word and we cling to it and we keep to it and we hold it and we believe it, we have protection against deception. <clears throat> what else? They didn't. When we'll hopefully we'll get to talk about this a little bit more today. They didn't seek God out. We don't do that when we sin. <laughs> when we sin, we run and hide. But God sought them out. <clears throat> what did God? <clears throat> excuse me. A, a minute ago, we mentioned this this uh, thing that Adam and Eve did of kind of trying to pass the blame around a little bit. Adam acknowledges that he ate of the tree of which he'd been commanded not to eat, but he also points the finger at his wife and he kind of points the finger at God. And Eve points the finger at the serpent. What did God do with Adam and Eve about this issue of blame? Pardon? Okay, they... Okay, they they were going to experience pain for eating of the tree. But how did God address this issue of them blaming one another? Yeah, he just ignores it. It looks like he ignores it. Okay, it looks like he ignores it because they because when Adam points that out about the woman. Uh, you know, God doesn't say to Adam, well, now listen, Adam, this was, you know, this is your problem. Okay? Did you notice that? And now they found translation might have been whatever. There you go. <laughs> there you go. But as I was reflecting on this whole thing, 
as I was reflecting on this whole thing yesterday a little bit more, I was thinking, uh, certainly Adam's pointing of blame, if, if it was an effort to somehow alleviate himself of responsibility for his action, of course, in that, to that degree, it was, it was at fault. But it is interesting to me that while God doesn't directly address the problem of Adam trying to shift blame to his wife and, and Eve trying to shift blame to the serpent, while He doesn't directly address that problem of them trying to shift blame, He does deal with the person who had to some degree been influential in their sin. In other words, the point I'm trying to make is to some degree Adam's complaint is legitimate. Is it not? Isn't there some degree to which Adam's complaint that this woman, she, she influenced me, she, she gave me of this fruit, she enticed me to eat it? And God does in fact deal with her for what she did. Does He not? And so, so while in the passage... It's very obvious to me at least, and I think to most of us, that to some degree what they're trying to do is shift blame. I think on another level we could acknowledge that that Adam had a legitimate complaint there. His complaint was, this woman has, has been an influence in my life for evil. And the same for the woman. This serpent has been an influence in my life for evil. And while God doesn't address the question of blame shifting, what He does do is He deals with the person who was responsible for the improper influence, right? In other words, He deals with Eve and He deals with the serpent because they were, because they were uh, responsible for this influence. The point I'm trying to get to is we live in a world in which we have all kinds of influences that tempt us to sin. And like Adam and like Eve, we are responsible for our actions. Okay? And God will hold us responsible for our actions. But God will also hold responsible those who influence us, who entice us, who tempt us. And that actually was kind of encouraging to me yesterday because, because our world is just full of people who are overtly trying to influence us to do evil. I mean, we turn on our television, we open our books, we read our newspapers, we walk down the street. Uh, you know, just everywhere we go, there are people who are trying to influence us to do evil. And we are accountable to God and responsible to God to act righteously in the face of that influence. But God will not hold the person guiltless who influences others to do evil. And that's, that's a... That's a lesson I, I think I can take from this. I can take the encouragement from this that God will hold those responsible who willfully and wantly seek to influence others to do evil. And, uh, and, I, and I was just encouraged by that. That's, uh, throw that in for what it's worth. Okay. Anything else you want to mention from last week before we go on? Yeah. We don't answer questions in this class. <laughs> I think she picked it up off the ground. So, I think the question is, is isn't that how people are enticed to do evil? 
because we don't see the immediate results of the evil. Yeah. And so, oh, no harm done. You yeah. know, it's, 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 no, it's no sin, you know, nobody gets hurt. That kind of thing. Yeah. That, that's very powerful influence. Yeah. And I, I just thought about that for a minute. I think maybe that's one of Satan's really, in his bag of tricks, one of the things he really likes to do to us. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's the reality. Almost every time we fall for temptation, is we're giving no thought at all to the consequences. <laughs> you know, we're giving no thought at all to what's what's going to happen. We're just thinking about uh, the pleasure of sin for a season, and we don't, you know, and and sin does almost inevitably and invariably does give some immediate pleasure to it whatever that is and that's what we focus on and, and which is why we fall. Right. Sometimes we do see the consequences but the consequences are later. Yeah. We'll deal with that later. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. Well, we looked last week at uh, the things that the Lord said to the serpent. We talked about the distinction between the serpent itself and, and Satan who is obviously uh, in, uh, indwelling and possessing the serpent and speaking through the serpent. And we talked about that. And uh, there's just a couple things I want to mention before we go on and talk about what the Lord said to Adam and to Eve, the consequences of their action. Uh, and, and as I mentioned last week, we're not exhaustively studying this passage. Uh, and, and there are a lot of things in this passage that you're familiar with and you, you know about. And I'm not particularly wanting to focus on the things that we are familiar with or that are common knowledge to us, but, but to maybe think about some things that we haven't thought about so much before uh, and, and wrestle maybe with a couple of difficult questions that come up from the passage. But there are a couple of things that I want to think about. Uh, one is the, as I just touched on it at the end last week, is the is this uh, thing about the seed that he talks about with the serpent there uh, in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And we talked about the fact that the, that this word seed, in, in addition to being used literally in the Old Testament to refer to the seed of plants, okay, uh, as it would be normally used, it's also used... Uh, symbolically or representatively uh, in the Scripture in three different ways that we talked about last week. And, and that is it can refer to an immediate descendant, the next child. So, for example, the seed of Eve uh, would be, the immediate seed of Eve would be Abel and then Cain and Seth. Okay, And um, so sometimes it refers to an immediate descendant. <clears throat> sometimes it refers to a distant offspring, as we talked about, the Christ as the seed of David. Okay, uh, So he's a distant offspring of David. And so sometimes the word seed is used in that way. And then sometimes the word seed is used to refer to all the offspring or a whole group of people who are the offspring of an individual. Okay, So that, for example, we speak of the Jews being of the seed of Abraham. Okay, so the the entire group, uh, this entire classification of people, are considered to be the seed of Abraham. So, when you come across the word, you have to kind of wrestle with it and figure out how is it being used. And in this passage, it appears to be used, being used in two of those three ways. It's being used in reference to a whole classification of people, and it's also and uh, there at the end of the verse is used in reference to a distant offspring, being of course. Christ, and you're familiar uh, with that. Now, uh, 
one of the things that, that we need to kind of get our arms around here, get a handle on, is this idea of the contrast between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Okay, Because when he's speaking of the seed of the serpent, he's not speaking of some physical lineage or physical descendants of the serpent. He's not talking here about the snake. All right, and he's and he's he's talking here about about Satan. He's talking about the serpent. Okay, uh, or excuse me, about uh, Lucifer. So when he's when he's talking about the seed of the the seed of the serpent, he's talking about as I mentioned last week, and I just mentioned this briefly. He's talking about the whole unrighteous line. He's not talking about uh, Satan's uh, demons. Uh, they're not descendants of Satan, but he's talking about those who are descendants of this way of thinking and this way of doing things, operating independently of God and believing the lie of the, of, 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 uh, the serpent, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so so what you so what you have really is is you have the seed of the serpent who are really the descendants of Eve. Okay? What I mean by that is Eve has, coming from her body, she has two lines of descendants. She has the righteous seed, okay, and she has the unrighteous seed. But the unrighteous, she is not considered in Scripture here. She is not considered to be the head of the unrighteous line. The serpent is considered to be the head of the unrighteous line. Now we have a we have another example of this in Scripture to illustrate this point, and maybe it'll help you understand this. So what I and I'll get to that in just a second. So what I'm saying is that is that the seed of the the seed of the serpent that he's referring to here are actually descendants of Eve, people physically born from her body, but who live according to the lie of the serpent. Okay, that's what he's referring to, and. And we have an example of that, another example of that same type of thing with Abraham. Okay, with Abraham we have a man who physically gave birth to two separate lines, right? And those two separate lines are through whom? Pardon? Ishmael and Isaac. Okay, so he gives birth to two separate lines. Okay, and later in Scripture. Later in Scripture, Scripture makes a delineation even among those who are the descendants of Isaac. And some, the Scripture refers to as being the descendants of Abraham. And those are which? Those are who? Only, only a, pardon? Okay. But even with Jacob, what, what makes somebody a descendant of Abraham in the New Testament? Faith. Righteousness, okay? So, when you get to the New, by the time you get to the New Testament, it is those who are, who, who are of the faith of Abraham, not simply who are the physical descendants, but who are the faith of Abraham, who are considered to be the descendants of Abraham. Okay? Now, there are other descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what does Jesus call them? Matthew chapter 13. Okay, but specifically descendants of whom? Your father the devil. Your father the devil. Yeah, okay. So here we have in Abraham, we have an example that of someone who gave physical birth 
to two different lines. A line of faith and a line of unbelief. And the line of faith is considered to be the descendants of Abraham. And Jesus says that the line of unbelief is considered to be sons of the devil. Okay? So, so it's the same type of thing that we have with Eve. That with Eve we have, we have all, these, all these ones that are born out of her body. Okay? But some are the righteous line. They are the ones who walk by faith, who believe God, who obey God, who trust His Word. And then you have the unrighteous line, but, but Scripture doesn't consider them to be, or I should put it this way, Scripture doesn't consider Eve to be the head of that line. Scripture considers the serpent to be the head of that line. Okay. So you have these two lines, or these two seeds coming out of the Garden of Eden. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Okay? And, and as I mentioned before, we're going to follow these righteous lines as we go on down through Genesis. But I want to keep this idea of the righteous seed in mind because it's going to become relevant as we talk about some of the things that happen here with Eve in, in this passage. Okay? So, uh, <clears throat> that's one thing I want to consider. Another thing I want to consider as we move forward is the issue of the mandates. Okay, now there have been two mandates that have been given to Adam and Eve before the fall. What are those two mandates? Pardon? Okay, that's one of them. One of them is to have dominion over the earth and to subdue the earth. What is the other mandate? Be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so these are the two mandates that are given to Adam and Eve before the fall. Okay, and... So what God's intention was before the fall is that when Adam and Eve would, would uh, bear children and they, they, would rise, they would raise up this holy seed, this massive population ultimately, eventually, of people, all who would be righteous, all who would be purely, perfectly innocent, all who would love God and enjoy God and whom God could enjoy and have all this fellowship. And so this was God's intention, was to fill the earth with people with whom He could fellowship and who could fellowship with Him, etc., etc., etc. And so that was one mandate, was to raise up this massive population of people, of human beings who would be for His glory and His pleasure and vice versa. Um, and in addition to that, man was also given the responsibility to subdue the earth. That is, to, to bring the earth in subservience to himself. That is, to mankind. Okay? To make the earth work for mankind. Okay? And that is the objective. Okay? Now, the thing I want to point out to you about the mandates is those mandates remain. Okay? They, didn't, they weren't obliterated in the fall. Now, they are affected, as we see in the consequences we're going to look at today, these mandates are impacted in how we carry out the mandate that is impacted. But we still have the we still have the mandates. And in fact, I would suggest to you that we are hardwired with those mandates. Okay. Someone has said that the command to be fruitful and multiply is the only command that mankind has obeyed, has continued to obey of God's. Okay? Well, why do we do that? Why does mankind continue to be fruitful and multiply? Well, because we're just kind of hardwired that way. Okay, that's one thing we, generally speaking, don't have a problem with wanting to do. Okay, but I would suggest to you that the command to the subdue the earth is also something that we are hardwired with. 
You take a person, you take a man or you take a woman and you put them in an environment and what do they immediately begin to do? Any environment. Put them in a house, put them out on a ranch, put them out in a jungle. Wherever you put them, what do they do? Organize. They start organizing. They start subduing it. They start building things or making it so it works better for them, right? So even, you know, if there were such a thing as cavemen, you know, you take a guy, you stick him in a cave, and what does he start doing right away? He starts drawing on the walls of the cave and making it look good, and, you know, and, and he starts building a fire, figuring out how to build, you know. This, we are hardwired to subdue the earth. Okay. And so today, as we, go through our, as we go through the world today, we see the evidences that man is hardwired to do these mandates. Because we see people everywhere. <laughs> and they just keep coming more and more and more and more and more of them. Yeah? They just keep, we're hardwired to multiply and fill the earth. Yeah? Think about what Gary said last week, though, as Satan gets more control in these latter days, you see man going against that, both the environmental wackos that it's wrong to mess with the earth or use resources, and the let's don't have kids, emotion mm-hmm. of homosexuality. Yeah. So, as he said, even even we're going against our own nature now. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is true to a degree. Whether or not that ultimately prevails over this hardwired aspect of us, I I don't know because even the environmentalists like to drive SUVs and fly in jet airplanes. So, uh, so to some degree, I think they're they're swimming upstream on that one. But but that is a good point. But one of the things that's neat for me as I go through the world is is looking at how man is fulfilling this mandate to subdue the earth. Okay. So, so, you know, you just think about it. It's all around us. You ladies, you know, the way you got your living room all decorated up, that's, you're subduing the earth. You're, you're controlling the environment and making it, you know, the, you, got, you guys are women that are obsessed with, you know, a, a beautiful landscaped yard. That's evidence of man subduing the earth, you know. We drive through our cities and we see these magnificent structures and buildings and uh, skyscrapers and, and artwork and things like that that we see are all evidences of man subduing his environment and making the environment, making the earth work for him, okay? So this is what... This is what God intended. Now, of course, it's all corrupted by sin now, but God intended that we would be fruitful and we and multiply and fill the earth. And, and of course, God's intention is that is that is that all the people who filled the earth would be for His glory and for His pleasure. Okay, but in addition to that, He wanted us to subdue the earth, to make it work for us, to create an environment that was that was desirable and suitable and to use the creative abilities that he'd given to us to create this wonderful environment for ourselves. Okay. So that was what God intended. But then comes the fall. And we've already seen what God does here with the serpent and we've talked about that. But now we come to the consequences of the fall in relationship to Adam and Eve. And I want you to notice that that the consequences of the fall with Eve and the consequences of the fall with Adam are chiefly related to how they fulfill the mandates. Do you notice that? For example, if the, man, if the general mandate for mankind is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to subdue the earth, 
Where did woman fit into this when God created woman? How does she fit into that mandate? Those mandates. Pardon? One is she bears children. Okay, So she was the vehicle. She was the means by which these children were to be brought into the world and the world was to be filled with people then to glorify and honor God. Okay. That was his purpose and that was how she was fulfilled. How was she to help fulfill the other part of the mandate to subdue the earth? As a helper, As a helper for the man. Yeah. So, so the man's job, primary responsibility is to subdue the earth. Okay. And the woman is given to him as a helper to help him fulfill that part of his mandate. Okay. So now we come to the consequences of the fall. And the Lord says to Eve that because you have done this, there are going to be con- there, are, there are consequences. There is an, there is an effect that, that follows from the, from the conduct that you have just engaged in. And, and it affects these two areas of mandate. The area of being fruitful and multiply and filling the earth and the area of subduing the earth in relation so you, so it's, you're going to be impacted in the area of this issue of multiplying and filling the earth i.e. childbearing and you're going to be affected in the area of your relationship with the man with the husband right okay so those two areas are impacted in Eve's life by the fall now in the area of bearing children how is she impacted Pardon? Pain. Okay. The Lord says that her pain would be greatly multiplied in childbirth. Now, uh, my wife, uh, we had all five of our children at home. Okay. And I was there for the birth of all five of those children. And I can tell you one thing for sure. I'm glad she did it. (laughs) It was hard, excruciating work. Now, we're glad she did it <laughs> and we're glad for what we've got, but uh, five times I got to be an eyewitness to the impact of the fall on a woman. It's just excruciating. Now, I don't know what it was like to give birth before the fall, <laughs> okay. but it's clear that there was nothing like the pain that a woman knows now because of the fall. That's clear. He says, I'm going to greatly multiply your pain. Now, I don't mean I don't know if that means that she didn't have any pain or she only had a little pain, you know, maybe a little twinge. I don't know what it was, but it's greatly multiplied. It's it's pretty dramatic. In pain he says you will bring forth children. Okay. So that's just a given now. Okay. And that's because of the fall. Now pardon? Well, there was no human birth before the fall, right? Yes, but but assuming that had there not been a fall, there would yes, yeah, good point. Uh, assuming there had not been a fall, then ultimately the birth would have been without children. Uh, been, birth would not have been without children. Birth would have been without pain. <laughs> okay. Um, so one of the things that's implied in this is that there is obviously some kind of physiological change that's taken place in the woman because of the fall. Right? Okay. Something happened. 
We don't know what. I don't know how to explain it. Uh, scripture doesn't tell us, and that's fine. All we know is that every time a woman gives birth today, now she has to deal with the consequences of the fall in one way or another. Okay, that's just that's just a given. Okay. But you'll notice that the mandate didn't change. The mandate is still to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Nor did her hardwiring to do that change. She's still hardwired to do that. She still wants to do that. It's just now she's going to do it with pain. Okay. Then the second part of the consequences on the woman is what? Nobody wants to read this part. <laughs> you people are all chickens. I have to talk about it now. Come on, read it. <laughs> and and he will rule over you. Okay. Now, the commentators who don't just totally dodge this passage <laughs> are all over the map on it. Okay. And and there's a couple reasons for that. At least one is it's a difficult passage to understand. The second thing is. In the 20th and 21st century, it's an extremely volatile passage <laughs> to deal with. Okay, I think the best way to understand the passage, we could talk about what all the alternatives are, etc., but I'm not going to take time to do that. I think the best way to understand the passage is uh, there's a clue. If you'll flip over to chapter 4, and it's a passage that we'll look at uh, when I get back, the first week I get back, when we start talking about the story of Cain and Abel, and we'll, ex we'll exegete this, this verse in detail at that point. But notice in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, If you do well, he's speaking, God's speaking to Cain. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule it or master it. The word desire there is exactly the same word as desire in chapter 3, verse 16. And the word master there is exactly the same Hebrew word as the word rule in chapter 3, verse 16. So I would suggest to you, particularly because these two passages are in such close proximity to, to one another, I would suggest to you that there's a clue there in in chapter 4 as to the meaning of what he's saying in chapter 3. Okay. That as I approach the, the, the uh, verse 16 where it says that her desire will be for you, for your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, it's clear that what God is trying to tell her is this is, is, this is a consequence of the fall. Okay, that, that whatever's going on here, whatever he's talking about here in the desire and rule, that this has to do with the fall. Okay? And, and, the, and the effect that the fall has brought in your relationship to your husband. Okay? So, so he, he can't, it doesn't seem to me at all logical or reasonable that he could be saying simply that she's going to love and desire and want her husband sexually and that he will... Uh, be an authority over her because that's a that's the way it was before the fall. Okay, that's so. There's no change there. It's just the same. So there's there's no consequence there. Okay. So the question is, what is the consequence? Okay. Well, if chapter four verse seven is a clue, then then I would suggest to you that the desire that she has that he's talking about here is the, is the desire that is the result 
of the action that she took to take leadership in the relationship. That's what she did, right? In the fall. She took leadership in the relationship and she enticed her husband to sin. Okay? And that was part of the problem. Okay? So, I think what he's saying here is, is this is now part of your nature. In the fall, this has become part of your nature. Your desire is to dominate your husband. Your desire is to rule over your husband. That's exactly how the word desire is used in chapter 4, right? Sin's desire is for you. The idea is sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. He's speaking to Cain. Sin wants to dominate you. Sin wants to control you. But Cain, your responsibility is to do what? Master it. Dominate it. Rule over it. Don't let sin rule over you. Okay. And so what he is saying to Eve is, now your relationship with your husband has been corrupted. Because now there's going to be a tug of war between you and your husband. That tug of war did not exist before the fall. But now there's a tug of war between the woman and her husband. And she has this, she has this thing in her nature now where she has this desire to dominate and to take control. And I was thinking yesterday... I was thinking of how many new brides come into a marriage relationship with a whole list of things about their husband they want to change. And part of the way, part of the, one of the things you have to deal with in marriage after you get married is you have to learn to quit trying to change your mate. Now, I think us men do it some, to some degree as well. But I think women are much more prone in that. What my experience has been, and what I've observed, is that women are much more prone, much more have much more an agenda of how they want to change their husbands than husbands how they want to change their wives. You know, that's just my experience. And I think what God is saying here is, is you've corrupted things here, and now there's going to be this tug of war. But ultimately, He's saying, the husband will rule. He doesn't say he should rule. He said he will rule. Okay. So, and we could take a lot of time on this. It is interesting to me how oftentimes we talk in Christian circles about the responsibility of the man to take the headship in his home. And I would suggest to you he doesn't have to do that. Because Ephesians 5 does not tell the man to take the headship in his home. Ephesians 5 says he is the head. The question is, what kind of a head will he be? Guys, you are the head. You are the head. You are the leader. You don't have to take leadership. You are the leader. If you lay back on the couch and you do nothing and you just let the whole household go to hell, that's your leadership. And God will hold you responsible for that. So God says that man is going to have dominion over the woman and there is going to be this tug of war and that tug of war has existed since the beginning and continues to exist to this day. Okay, This tug of war, this struggle. Okay, That is how the relationship between the man and the woman has been corrupted. But when God says that the man will rule over the woman, what He's saying is the order I established before the fall stands. So even though now you want to fight for control, even though now you want to have dominion, you still are going to find yourself in submission of the man. Now, the, when it says the man will rule over you, there's nothing in that that implies 
the quality of rule. Okay, So the man may rule with tyranny or he may rule with compassion and love and consideration. That's the man's issue. Okay. Uh, so, and as we read, as we go through Scripture, we're going to see it unfold both ways, aren't we? We're going to see how oftentimes man rules in brutality and tyranny over his wife. Okay, that clearly is sin and is under the judgment of God. But there are other men who rule over their wives with great consideration and love, like Christ rules over the church. Okay, and and of course that is the way we're to do it, and that's the way God calls us to do it. So. That's the impact on the woman. Well, then he turns to he turns to Adam, and he says to Adam that because you have listened to the voice of your wife, in other words, because you have not exercised leadership in the relationship the way you should have, and the leadership you exercised was to allow her to sin and then to follow her into sin. <clears throat> Because you have done that, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. And then he goes into this elaborate discussion of how it's going to grow thorns and thistles and by the sweat of your brow and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What is he saying? He's saying you still have the responsibility to have dominion over the earth. You still have that mandate. But now, just as the woman has in some way physiologically been changed by the fall so that childbirth is painful for her, in the same way, the very earth itself has been physically changed, and I would suggest to you even man himself has been physically changed, so that now this process of dominion is very hard work. Have you guys ever noticed that? It's very hard work. Now, we don't all nowadays work by the sweat of our brow in a literal sense, but work for most of us is just very oftentimes very difficult. Now, it may be, still be pleasurable. It may be to some of us, fun, you know, uh, at points <laughs> or at times, but it's still hard work, you know. And I, I last uh, couple of weeks, I've been out doing uh, uh, Annette Thompson's house. So for those of you who have seen Annette Thompson's house, you know, it's a, it's a very tall house, high gables and all that sort of thing. And, and if you remember what the weather's been like the last couple of weeks, you know, I've been out there on those 30-foot ladders uh, painting the top of Annette Thompson's house. And I've been thinking about this curse. <laughs> I tell you, it wasn't only this. It wasn't only this, my face that was sweaty. <laughs> it was hard work. Okay, that's just. I still have dominion, but it's just a lot harder now than it was before. And every day when I get up and I think about going to work, and I, well, I'd rather stay home and lay on the couch. I'm dealing with the curse. I'm dealing with the change that's happened because of the fall. Now, what I want to point out to you is for both the man and the woman to carry out our mandate is now just much, much more difficult than it was. But we still have to do it, don't we? We still have to do it. We still have to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and we still have to subdue the earth and bring it under our control. Now, just so we can survive. Before, you know, I don't know what all was involved in this whole dominion thing, but now it's very clear. You don't do this, you won't eat. Now, before, they could just walk through the garden and pick fruit off a tree. 
But now they've got to cultivate. They've got to work. They've got to work by the sweat of their brow. And, and the lesson that I drew from that as I was thinking about this yesterday is just because something's really, really, really hard to do does not mean that God doesn't expect us to do it. There are some things in life that are just really hard. In fact, they may even be painful. By the way, thinking about that, uh, just let me point out to you, when he says in uh, in verse um, 17, down there in the middle of the verse where he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. That word toil is exactly the same word that he uses in verse 16 when he talks about pain and childbirth for the women. It's the same word. And my point is that that sometimes there are things that God expects of us and God requires of us. There are mandates, if you will, that God has given to us. And sometimes they're just really, really hard to do. And at that point, I start thinking, well, maybe God doesn't want me to do this. How hard something is to do is not an evidence of whether or not God wants us to do it. I'm really glad that about a third of the way into the birth of any one of my children, my wife didn't just go, well, you know, this is pretty hard. Maybe this isn't God's will. Not that she had much choice in the matter at that point. But oftentimes we do that as men. You know, things get really difficult for us and we bail out. There's a lot of guys who, you know, as Proverbs talks about, turn like a hinge, turn like a door on a hinge on their bed rather than go out and work. Sometimes just doing God's will is hard work. But that doesn't mean it isn't God's will. Well, now now something really... And, and then he talks too about death and this is where the death comes in that God promised. There was, of course, the spiritual death that occurred on the day that they... Uh, the day that they uh, uh, sinned. But then also there is this future death that they are going to incur where they're going to return to the dust, he says, uh, because from dust they came and to dust they shall return. Now, something really fascinating happens here in the story. Next verse, what happens? Pardon? Adam gives his wife a name. Excuse me, didn't Adam already give his wife a name? He called her woman. Now he's giving her another name. He's calling her Eve. Which means what? Mother of all the living. Why is he doing this? Okay, but I mean, how's he how's he know this? How's he know this about her? I mean, they have just blown the whole plan. They just blown God's plan to smithereens, right? 
They've just shattered the whole thing. They've messed up all of creation. And they're under the judgment of death. Why is Adam all of a sudden talking about life? Okay. Okay. Come on. You're, you got it. You got it. You got it. You're on the right track. Pardon? They're going to have children. They're going to have children. That's what he said. God told, God told the serpent that the woman was going to have children. And when God said to the woman, in pain you will bear children, she's thinking about pain, but Adam's thinking about children. It's kind of the way it was when my wife and I had kids. <laughs> she thought about the pain, I thought about the kids. <laughs> okay. But Adam is seen in the consequences of sin, Adam is seen the promise of God. That there are going to be multiple children. Notice he says all the living. <laughs> okay, There are going to be multiple children and in those multiple children that are going to be born is going to come one specific one who will do what? Crush the serpent who has just crushed them. And suddenly, here is Adam who just moments before has been off hiding from God and putting on fig leaves and all that sort of stuff. And then God comes and finds him, which is the last thing he wanted. God comes and finds him and God starts dealing with his sin. But even as God is dealing with his sin, something is happening in the heart of Adam. And his faith is being renewed. And his fellowship with God is being renewed. And I want you to notice his attitude towards his wife is transformed. What was he doing about his wife just a moment before? He was pointing a finger at her. He was blaming her. He was accusing her. This woman whom you gave to me to be with me. He was accusing her. And now... Once he hears God's plan refreshed and renewed in his mind and his faith is restored and his fellowship with God is restored, his attitude towards his wife is transformed. And he says, that woman is the mother of all living. And now he names her again, but he doesn't name her this time based on where she came from. He named her after her destiny. And I thought, about, I thought about how Paul admonishes us guys to honor our wives as those who are what? Fellow heirs. We're to look at our wives based on their future, their destiny. And Adam's, Adam's whole perspective is transformed and changed not only in his relationship with God, but in his relationship with the woman. And he calls her Eve. And then, God does what? He made garments of skin for him. You know that little feeble, autonomous effort of them to cover their shilt, their, their shilt, their shame and their guilt? 
<coughs> I just coined a new word there, okay? Save me time in the future. <coughs> their shame and their guilt, their own little autonomous effort, and they covered themselves with these fig leaves which get blown around by the wind and don't do very good. You know, we won't go there. But God now comes and He provides skins to cover them. To do that, what did He have to do? He had to shed blood. He had to kill an animal. In order that their shame could be covered, blood had to be shed. And God shed blood in order that they would have a covering that satisfied Him. And so He does that. And then He does one other act of grace. And what is that? He got them out of the garden as fast as He could. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Well, folks, the last thing I want to do is live forever in this body. The last thing I want to do. It's falling apart for one thing. <laughs> but the worst thing is, is it just carries around that sin nature with it. And it's got to go. And so... Don't be mistaken, death really is our enemy. Paul calls it our greatest enemy. Okay, Death really is our adversary. And death is our enemy. And death is part of the whole curse thing. Okay, So don't, don't lose sight of that. But death is also a great deliverance. We've got to have it. We've got to go through it, folks. And so God gets them out of the garden so they cannot eat of the tree of life. Well, there's a lot of things we could say about the tree of life that we don't have time to talk about. <clears throat> but just remember this. The tree of life, this is the last time we read about it. Till when? Pardon? Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, he talks about those who are overcomers will have the right to the tree of life. Now, I don't know what happened to the tree of life and garden. I don't know if the tree of life and revelation, he also talks about it several times in chapter 22 of Revelation as being in the, in the paradise of God. So, I don't know if the, if the tree of life in Revelation is a literal tree or if he's speaking allegorically. I believe he's speaking literally there and I think personally that it's the same tree. I don't know if it is. I just think it is. Okay. I don't know what happened after the flood and the Garden of Eden. I don't know what happened to the Garden of Eden in the flood, but I got a pretty good idea. It was wiped out. And somebody will go, well, how did God get the tree from out of the Garden of Eden and preserve it until the new heavens and the new earth? Well, uh, He's doing that with Jesus and He's doing that with, uh, with uh, Enoch and He's doing that with Elijah. So, you know, I, I, imagine, I imagine you can do it with a tree. You know, so, anyway. okay. Well, that's neither here nor there. So that's, that's it. Next week, next couple of weeks, Rick will have you uh, and the other Rick will have you. And, uh, and then I'll be back and we'll pick up chapter four in three weeks.